0: Greetings, I'm Bishop Chester Wright and this is the video teaching series The Biblical Principles Governing the Eyes This is lesson number 16 in that series And uh, I've used a phrase several times over the course of these uh, previous lessons The lust of the eyes I, I think it's time that we actually look into what that means, how it's used, and, uh, and really, really more clearly explain and define what the lust of the eyes is. The lust of the eyes uh, is the result of eyes that are not bound to a covenant, one that we have consciously made, uh, and have become an ally with our flesh and are in league with our pride eventually causing us to love the world and not the Father. The, the, one of the most significant points of reference for the lust of the eyes is found in 1 John two fifteen, and I've uh, rapidly quoted these verses in a couple of previous uh, lessons, but we're going to focus on them at this time. Uh, 1 John two fifteen through 17 reads this way, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Uh, they're not uh, ambiguous at all. They are very clearly and pointedly stating the difference between our relationship with God and our relationship with the world through our flesh, through our humanity. Uh, And while we all have both a relationship with God and a relationship with humanity, this relationship might not be a good relationship and this relationship over here might not be a good relationship. Uh, again, I am body, soul, and spirit. And my soul is the real me. Body goes back to dust. From which it came, the spirit of life goes back to God, which gave it. I am, I, I am the soul. I am the soul. That's me. My soul lives in this house that you're looking at. This house is not me. Uh, the soul in me does not age in me. My image of myself inside does not look, looks very different than the image of you that you're seeing because my soul does not age. My body ages. So this, this is just a house that I'm living in. And so my soul has two parts and I've said this a couple of times, but it's important in this context. My soul has two parts, my conscious self, which is, called my mind that's the part with which i relate to the world i communicate to the the temporal world and the temporal world communicates with me through with my soul me uh through my mind the heart is my inner man and uh that is who i really am that's the seat of my will the seat of my feelings uh my decisions are not made with my mind they're made with my heart contrary to what some people believe uh The seat of my will is my heart. My soul uh, may take information from both places, but my soul, the me, makes a decision. But where is that decision made? In my heart. The heart is uh, out of the heart or the issue. Uh, We used this the last uh, lesson. Uh, uh, Give diligence to guard the heart. Guard your heart with all diligence. For out of it are the issues of life. So it's not my mind. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So my inner man thinks, my conscious man thinks, but there are two different things. Uh, my, my subconscious or inner man relates to God, uh, if it's going to relate to God, and my, my mind relates to uh, this world. And I have to decide uh, which one of those influences, my soul, me, I have to decide which one of those influences are going to be the path that I follow. And so the Lord in making a distinction, that verse that I've used many times in these lessons, Galatians 3 and or 5 and 17, the the the, the uh, flesh flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit lusts against the flesh. These are contrary one to the other. Uh, the word contrary, there's open hostility against each other uh, so that you cannot do the things that you would. So I have to decide whether the influences from God or the influences through my flesh are going to win. I have to decide who's going to do that. But in helping, trying to help us to to diagnose our condition, so to speak, diagnose our current spiritual position and condition, uh, God gives us certain verses that are really clear in helping that diagnosis. These verses are some of those very direct and specific verses that help us with that diagnosis. So he says, love not the world. The neither the things that are in the world. I can use the things without loving them. But if I begin to love them, if I love the things of the world, then I'm loving the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then John gives us more detail. He says, for all that is in the world, the things that are in the world, and what he really does is instead of describing the things in the world, he's describing the way, the parts of us, and the way that we react to the world and those things. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So again, these things that are in the world, I'm in the world, this is the parts of me that allow the world and the adversary, who's the God of this world, to affect me through my flesh. All of this has to do with my flesh, except for the third one. And that's, that's the pride of life. And we'll, we we'll get into talking about that to some degree. Before I actually begin to, to discuss those three things in detail, just for further, uh, understanding, I'd like to read uh, verse 16 to you from a couple of different verses, uh, translations. The Amplified says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the Amplified explains the craving for sensual, sensual gratification, and the lust of the eyes, greedy longings of the mind. So, it's not greedy just for money, it's greedy for greedy, being greedy for everything that the world has to offer, and the pride of life, And it explains the pride of life is the assurance of its own resources or in the stability of earthly things. These do not come from the Father, but are of the world. Weiss explains it this way, uh, or translates it this way, because everything which is in the world, the passionate desire of the flesh, the totally depraved nature, and the passionate desire of the eyes, and the insolent and empty assurance which trusts in the things that are self that serve the creature life is not from the Father as a source, but is from the world as a source. This is uh, this is really, really critical here. The Greek word lust that is used both concerning the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh is the word for longing, especially for that which is forbidden. And it, And the complete word study dictionary gives a degree to it. To desire greatly It is strong desire Longing or lust So it's not just a longing It is that longing look That that, that really triggers A strong desire A strong desire When our eyes act in concert With our flesh And our pride We will make decisions That demonstrate that our spiritual love interest Is not God But the world before we get into the details of this, the question would have to be asked, can one be saved who loves the world and not God? Do I really need to answer that? The answer is pretty obvious, isn't it? Love not the world, neither things are in the world. If any man love the world, love fathers not in him. All that is in the world, lust of flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. If who love the world, it will pass away. It's going to pass away the love of the world, the world pass away and the lust thereof. So if that's been my focus, the focus of my desire, my longing is the world, then what I'm desiring for and longing for is temporal. It's going to pass away. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So again, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Uh, In most cases, the one that actually starts all of this is the eyes. The flesh will lust for what the eyes see. The only time that the lust of the flesh would really precede the lust of the eyes is when I have a habit and I have deposited tattooed memories of images and experiences that uh, have memories of feelings and experiences with them. And so flesh begins to remember that without a trigger And then it will then cause the eyes to pursue looking for a renewal of that experience. Because just remembering what I've longed for and experiencing that from the past is not satisfying enough to the flesh. The flesh wants to have renewed experiences. So the eye then would go pursuing it. But in most cases, it's the eye that starts it and that triggers in us from the longing, uh, from the lingering to the longing, it triggers in us this lust of the flesh. Now, the problem with all of this is, and it is a problem, is that I cannot fellowship, cannot fellowship, dwell on, give focus and attention to, Fulfilling the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life without loving the source of those things, without loving them. Loving in the sense of uh, I'm no longer giving myself wholly to God. The greatest commandment, according to Jesus, is Hero O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. and Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and the word with all there in those four places it's not the greek word pause for all it is the greek word for the whole of literally the whole of god wants me to give him in love the whole of my heart the whole of my soul the whole of my mind the whole of my strength but if i'm divided If I'm divided, I'm trying to be a Christian, but I love the world too. I'm trying to live two lives. Uh, According to Jesus, we don't love him. Because ultimately, he's not going to be satisfied with anything less than the whole of us. Now, he understands, because he designed all this, that it is a growth process. That we are to grow in that love. That's why 1 John talks about perfected love. Perfected love is... Completed love. Love that uh, has reached a place of maturity and fruitfulness. So it is possible for me to love God but not have a proven love. A mature love. Well the problem is is without a mature or completed love John said uh, perfect love casteth out fear. So one of the ways I know that I may love God but I don't have a perfected love is that sometimes I battle fear, fear of circumstances, fear of events, fear of what might happen, fear of what I might lose, fear of rejection, fear of failure. I may love God but if I'm battling these things I do not have a mature love. Well, my love is not going to mature if I'm not focusing on getting to that place. If I'm not focusing on Learning how to let God, let him teach me how to let him work in my life and bring me to that place. If I'm trying to live two lives and I'm loving the world, then I'm not loving God. Not to the way that pleases him, that satisfies him. And in his long suffering with us and his patience with us, which is beyond our imagination, he will allow us to live this way uh, for some period of time. I don't know how long that is. It varies with each individual. He's God. He chooses with each one of us. But there comes a point in all this process. At some point, we convince God that we're not going to choose him wholly. That it may be our desire to continue to have some relationship with him so we can hope to be saved while we enjoy all that the world has to offer no matter how depraved it may become. Well, that doesn't work. That's not acceptable. It doesn't work. It doesn't work for the Lord. He said, if you're not with me, you're against me. If you're not scattering with me, if you're not gathering with me, you're scattering abroad. So there comes a point where God says, I've given you enough time. I've blessed you. I've helped you. I've talked to you. I've dealt with you. I've let good things come your way, I've let bad things come your way, and you don't get, you're not getting the message, and that's enough. He says, my spirit will not always strive with man. That tells us when he first said that it was about the world in Genesis 6 that it was wholly given to depravity because of their imaginations were only filled with wickedness all the time. Well, if he said, and he did, that he reached the point, my spirit will not always strive with man. That means that God had tried to communicate with them. He had tried to deal with them. He had tried to talk with them. But they didn't listen. So there is this point. So I'm not trying to give you or myself an out here. Okay, I can, I can have both of these for some period of time. That's a dangerous thing. What if I died in that condition? What if the rapture took place and I'm in that condition? Now, I have to make a decision. I have to make a decision. That's why we're teaching this series, The Biblical Principles Governing the Eye. Because most of these problems start with what my eyes see. And then what that look. And then the lingering. And then the longing, which produces the action. And so, if I habitually am giving in to the lust of the eyes, or the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, the pride of life. What is the pride of life? Very succinctly put, it is self-sufficiency. Notice what he said, in verse 17. And the world passeth away, in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The self-sufficient Christian is the one that pays God his homage. You do the obligatory things. You do the minimum that has to be done to consider yourself saved. But you never give him your whole heart, soul, mind, strength. And so if I entertain the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh... I create in me a strength of will to do what I want to do that I will not ultimately surrender my will to God. Because, you see, if I'm going to obey the greatest commandment and love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, the foundation of that is I ultimately have to surrender my whole will to God. I ultimately have to surrender my whole will to God. And, of course, the reminder is the world passeth away and the lust thereof. Now, (sighs) we may not want to hear this, but the Lord has made this a test of salvation. It's a test of salvation. So we, we have to decide. We have to decide what we're going to do with our eyes. Are we going to make the flesh submit to our will and to God's will by the grace of God and obey God? Is the flesh going to serve us in our walk with God? Or are we going to serve our flesh, both the eyes and the nature, and let it reinforce our normal sinful nature of self-will until we build such walls of rigidity with our will that we can't possibly give ourselves to God and give our will to God. To just wind this lesson up, uh, I want to use just a, a few places uh, in the scripture that talks about man and his relationship to what he sees and lusts after and the consequences of that. Uh, so, the following are some of the most egregious sins in the Bible. And they began with a simple look. And of course, the one that is the beginning of it all, uh, the Bible says concerning Eve in Genesis 3, 6, uh, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now, Satan accused God to Eve. He says, you're not going to die. He just knows, God knows that if you eat this, you're going to become god like God and know all things. You'll be like not God, know all things. Because the fruit of the tree was the knowledge of good and evil. That implies that Adam and Eve only had knowledge of good. They didn't have the other. Because the only temptation in the garden was this tree, which he said, thou shalt not, this is the only thing you can't eat of. And the serpent in the tree, that communicated with her about all this. So because she didn't really know what God said, she didn't really know that. Because she said, that God said that you can't eat of it or touch it lest you die. God, she added to the word. God never said she couldn't touch it. God said you can't eat of it. But she didn't really know what the word of God said, so she couldn't resist what Satan said. And so then we come down to this point. Here we are. And so... (sighs) The scripture says she saw that the tree was good for food. That's the lust of the eyes. And that it was pleasant to the eyes. In this context, that would be the lust of the flesh. Because it's not just what she's seeing. It's what she's feeling or perceived she would feel as a result of what she's seeing and a tree to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life. So from the beginning, even before there was a first sin, there was a natural world with a temptation. Again, why did God, that's the question, why did God put this tree in the garden? Why was there a serpent to be able to tempt her? Because love is a choice. And God wants us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But we cannot love if we don't have a choice. There has to be a choice. So the the world serves the purpose for us that the tree did in the garden. It gives us a choice. And we're supposed to choose. Because love is a choice. And she chose. She chose what her eyes saw, what her flesh desired. And what her pride wanted over God. She chose that. Now, it's another story altogether as to why her husband ate. The scripture says in Romans that she was deceived. Adam was not. Adam wasn't deceived. So that what she saw with her eyes that it was good for food and the pleasure she anticipated because of what her eyes saw and the fact that it would make her wise. She loved the world more than the love, than loving the father and her husband chose to accept all that with her. I don't know how long, I don't know if he automatically did it. I don't know if He realized she'd eaten and he ate so that he wouldn't lose her. I don't know that. I don't know if uh, she talked him into it. I don't know that. But he made a choice. He chose her over God. He wasn't tempted. Because he saw her. Been there, done that. Thank God the one I chose was the one that God chose for me first. But I understand that. So from the beginning, this lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, has been a factor in providing man a choice. We have to choose. Are we going to love the world? Or are we going to love God? There's another very disturbing passage in the scripture Uh I'm going to read a little bit here in these last few minutes, uh, just for context. And so, if you would allow me, it's dealing with Achan. Joshua chapter seven, verse ten. And the Lord said unto Joshua, "Get thee up, wherefore lies thou upon thy face?" What was Joshua doing? To his face. Israel had gone out to battle, and for the first time in Joshua's leadership, they'd been defeated and fled before the enemy. And is and Joshua comes home, and he's crying out to God, "Oh." Why have you forsaken us and why have you let us down and whatever? And God says to Joshua, get up. I haven't forsaken you. I haven't let you down. Israel hath sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, for they have taken of the accursed thing and have stolen and dissembled also, and they have put it even among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you anymore, except ye destroy the accursed thing from among you. Up, sanctify the people and say, Sanctify yourselves against them are. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel. Thou canst not stand before thine enemies until ye Take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes. It shall be that the tribe that which the Lord hath taken uh, by lot uh, shall come according to their families. And the families the Lord God shall take. Uh, Shall take shall come by households, and the household which the Lord God uh, shall take shall come by man, man by man. And it shall be that he that is taken with the accursed thing shall be burnt with fire, he and all that he hath, because he hath transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he hath wrought folly in Israel. And that's exactly what Joshua did. He brought the the tribes, the families, the household, and man by man until Achan uh, was. Uh, identified. And then in Joshua 7, verse 18, this is what it says. Joshua said unto Achan, my son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession unto him and tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. So God had identified the man, but God had not specified what the problem was. And Joshua didn't know what the problem was. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. 21, now listen to exactly what happened. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them. I saw them. I lingered in uh, had a lingering look on them, then I longed for them, and I acted on it, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent, and silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran into under the tent, and behold it was hid in his tent, and the silver under it. And they took them out of the midst of the tent and brought them unto Joshua and unto all the children of Israel and laid them out before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the garment and the wedge of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his asses and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them unto the valley of Achor and Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day, and all Israel stoned him with stones, and burned them with fire, after they had stoned them with stones, and they raised up over him a great heap of stones unto this day. So the Lord turned from the fierce of his anger, wherefore the name of that place was called the Valley of Achor unto this day. The word Achor there means hope, because of their repentance Because of God purging this thing out of Israel. Now you say that is pretty severe. No, uh, there were several people. I find, I don't remember exactly, but it was hundreds of men who died in that battle that was lost because of God having to withhold his blessing because of Achan's sin. Now, just as a side note here, There's one person not mentioned in all that, and that's Achan's wife. I don't know if she was already dead or if somehow she had taken a stand against Achan and God exempted her from this. I don't know. But Achan and all of his offspring and all of his possessions were cut off and destroyed so that no one could be tempted to take them. So, in light of that, and also in light of the conclusion of this lesson, Ecclesiastes 5, 10, and 11 says this, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? So when he says When the goods increase, they are increased that eat them. I believe that's actually not talking about his family, but all those that you spend that money on, all those that expect you to give them money, all those that are demanding your money and this opportunity, this business, buy this, buy this, buy this, do this. So that the only thing left saving to them is the saving of beholding them with their eyes. So who possesses our possessions? Do we possess them or do they possess us? They possess us unless God possesses us so that we are not bound to and possessed by our possessions. So Achan, Achan, it was a moment. It was a moment. It was one look. He saw this garment. He's there fighting with the army of Israel. They're defeating these these uh, people, this army that was against Israel, and he saw it. There among the stuff was a goodly Babylonish garment. I, why did he take it? He couldn't wear it. Everybody would know where he got it. Uh, an amount of silver and a wedge of gold. And he took it and hid it in the heart of his tent, in the ground, in the heart of his tent. He thought he could have the love of the world in him and bury it, and nobody would know it, and there would be no consequences from it. That's not so. His consequences affected all of Israel, cost people their lives, and then it came back upon his own head. Hear me, please, hear me. The lust of the eyes lead to the lust of the flesh, which lusts to the self-sufficiency of our pride. And that's not of God. It's of this world. And the world's going to pass away and be destroyed. Only those who do the will of God and love the Father are going to be saved. What's your decision? What's your choice? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray again for the grace of God upon everyone who has watched or is watching this video and this lesson and everyone who is including myself, who is affected by this word, that God would empower us and enable us to love him and not love this world. God, give us the supernatural empowerment of a choice that pleases God. In Jesus' name.